This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Last week, um, I planned to preach a single message on Reformation Sunday about the Reformation, what God did, um, how that affects us today, and um, that morning God began to stir in me and say, I don't know that this is going to be one message. Uh, And then while I was over here waiting for the message time as we were worshiping, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, no. You'll start this morning, you'll finish up next week. And so we just covered the first of five solas, of five theological convictions or truths that came out of the Reformation that shape who we are today. By last Monday evening, I felt clearly um, the voice of God saying, not just one more Sunday, but a Sunday on each sola. So I don't know what's happening here. This has never happened to me in 20 years. Um, But we're going to continue today and through the rest of this month to unpack uh, Sunday by Sunday each one of these significant and central theological truths that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. One of the most fascinating duels that ever took place in the theological arena between theologians was a duel that erupted in the 1600s between a man named Desiderius Erasmus and Martin Luther. Prompted in 1524 by uh, a writing, a pamphlet of Erasmus's entitled The Diatribe Concerning Free Will that Erasmus had written in response to um, the theology and the work of the Reformation that was happening right then um, sparked this and Erasmus was a friend of Luther's he was a Catholic theologian and humanist and about a year later 1525 Luther wrote a response simply entitled the bondage of the will his now famous book that you can get on Amazon or anywhere else um, that has been translated many, many times and has sold millions of copies since then. The diatribe concerning free will or shorter, just the freedom of the will by Erasmus. And then Luther's reply, the bondage of the will. Luther writes in the bondage of the will to Erasmus and says this, It is in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. Indeed, let me tell you, that is the hinge on which our discussion turns. For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me. 
Now, if I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, praise, give thanks, or serve him. For I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. Now, Erasmus was a brilliant guy. He was a great thinker, scholar. He had uh, translated the New Testament into the language that Luther actually read that led to Luther's own conversion as he wrestled with Romans 1.17. But Erasmus was not on a plane with Luther when it came to biblical theology. theology. In a sense, Erasmus was a theological kitten who had pawed at a theological tiger. And Luther took his time and he responded fully. See, what had happened here is Erasmus, more than anyone else at this time in the 1520s, had really um, put his finger on the deeper issue beneath all of the others in their day, the issues of sacraments and indulgences and the priesthood and purgatory and acts of penance. The central question he put his finger on was this. Are we so sinful, are you and I so sinful that God must act and must act decisively in our redemption and sanctification or it will not happen? Are you and I so sinful that God must act and must act decisively in our redemption and sanctification, or it will not happen. Luther goes on in a different section of the bondage of the will, sort of framing this debate with Erasmus and says, you, speaking here to Erasmus, plainly assert that the will is effective in things pertaining to eternal salvation when you speak of its striving, the striving of the human will toward God. And again, you assert that it is passive when saying that without the mercy of God, it is ineffective. But you fail to define the limits within which we should think of the will as acting and being acted upon. Thus you keep us in ignorance as to how far the mercy of God extends and how far our own will extends. What man's will and God's will really do effect. This is hugely important. And this is behind the idea of solus Christus, which we'll come to in a minute. Christ alone, or in Christ alone. The question of what part God plays in my salvation and what part I play in my salvation has everything to do, everything to do with how I see and respond to God. The question of how much God has to do in your salvation and how much you have to do in it 
makes all the difference in the world in how you see God and how you respond to God. Now by this issue of will or free will, if you will, that Erasmus and Luther were debating. Let's define it this way. Free will is the decisive self-determination. Decisive self-determination in acts of faith and obedience. Decisive self-determination in acts of faith and obedience. I mean, in other words, obviously, obviously, we are willing and active in the process of our own salvation. God has created us as, as human beings, persons with agency, reason, and affections. We're not Autobots. But the question stands before us this morning, before you this morning, as it did at the center of the raging reformation of the church in the 16th century, can you, in and of yourself, can you, in and of yourself, apart from any decisive act on God's part, can you, in and of yourself, freely choose to follow and or obey God? Erasmus did not believe that human beings were so sinful as to be rendered helpless before God in spiritual matters. He did not. Sinful, yes. So sinful as to be rendered helpless before God in spiritual matters? No. But Luther did. As did Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox in Scotland and William Tyndale who translated the first Bible into English from the original manuscripts, not from a, a Latin translation of it in England. It was the heart of the Reformation view. And incidentally, so did Augustine centuries before. So did the Puritans, so did Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer, and I could go on and on and on and on. And what's at stake here, why this matters so much this morning, not just in the 1500s, is because uh, what's at stake is, is your sense of assurance in your own salvation and your ability to delight in and trust and find joy in God himself. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you believe you had something to do with your being saved, that there's always a question about the goodness and the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of God in Christ and of whether or not you can keep yourself in that state of divine favor and relationship. Luther said in his commentary on the epistle of the Galatians, it is true that the doctrine of the gospel takes all glory, wisdom, and righteousness from men and ascribes them to the Creator alone who makes everything out of nothing. Now, I submit to you that many of us this morning, many of us in this room, do not really believe this. And we're going to look in just a minute at what the Bible says. Because who cares what Luther says or Calvin 
or Matt Jeffries if it isn't coming from God's Word and isn't aligning with God's Word. But you and I believe some version of this. God makes this, this universal invitation to human beings to be saved. And some say yes and some say no based on their own free will. Which if you are intellectually honest and rational, you would have to say that then makes me a participant, a co-worker in my own salvation with God and better than my neighbor and my family members and my co-workers who said no. Because I freely said yes. And they said freely no. I must be more righteous in and of myself. We don't follow that out because we know in our souls before God, it's an absurd cul-de-sac that leads to nowhere. And yet, this is the gospel we've heard and many of us have believed. I said yes. God gave a general invitation and some say yes like me and some say no like others. The failure to see the gravity of sin, I submit to you, is wedded completely with that idea. That that view of the gospel, that view of redemption, fails completely to understand the biblical teaching about who we are in our sin apart from Christ. It's why we can have such weak worship, why we can be so unmoved year after year. If some of it's God and some of it's me, then maybe I'm off today and I just pat myself on the back. The failure to see the gravity of sin and the depth of our own corrupted and imprisoned will, if not acknowledged and laid before God, will become inevitably an assault on the person and the work of Christ. Scripture says we need to be delivered. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. 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 That's not even a word. We need to be redeemed. We need to have our debt paid by someone else. That we are not the active agents in this. So we come again to the five solas of the Reformation that distinguished the Reformers from the teachings and practice of the Roman Catholic Church and gave birth to Protestantism. Because the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, you need to be redeemed. Yes, Christ is the Redeemer. And you must practice acts of penance and attend church where through the sacraments administered by God's chosen priest, grace will be meted out to you based on the storehouse accumulated on the cross by Christ held by the church. And the reformer said, solus Christus, Christ alone. No priesthood. No storehouses of grace in the church to be sent out. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 
Let's start to see what the Bible says here. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 5 and 6. I'm going to be in a number of places. If you've got the app open, you can follow along. If you've got your Bible and you're trying to follow along, you can do that. Or you can watch mostly on the screen and keep your finger in 1 Timothy 2 and Romans 3. 1 Timothy 2 and Romans 3. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God. Now, if we stopped right there, we'd be going against the grain of the pluralism of our culture. And even many professing Christians who say in response to solid polls and research now, who are churchgoers, yes, Jesus is my way, but I, I, I struggle with the belief that he's the only way. And behind them is a chorus of voices from the 14 and 15 and 16 and 1700 saying, Solus Christus, Christ alone. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Christ gave himself as a ransom. Why? Because the people he's ransoming, ransoming could not do it themselves could not do it themselves. One God, one mediator and redeemer, deliverer, ransomer, rescuer for all people that has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Solus Christus. But why? Why is it so necessary that Christ would come and in his own words, freely give himself as a ransom for many. i give you three reasons. I could give you more. But I'm trying to stay within some kind of time frame here. First is that we are by nature hostile to God. We are by nature hostile to God. And when I say by nature, I mean by fact of being born a human being under the guilt and the weight of sin, sinner, by inclination and by choice, we are hostile to God. Look at John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. John three nineteen and 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. There's this hostility toward God, toward Jesus Christ who says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Don't miss this language here of love and hate. We, in our nature, love the darkness and hate the light. Love and hate aren't simply choices we make. They're deep, 
dispositions of the soul. Have you ever heard a, a child or maybe an adult, maybe you had something you thought was so good and you wanted them to eat it and they ate it and they go, ah, not very good. Well, what do you not like about it? I don't know. I just don't like it. It's what John is saying here. That the light of God has come into the world, but we are by nature people who love darkness and hate the light. It is not simply what we do, it is who we are. We are lovers of darkness and haters of light. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. Romans 8, 5 through 9. As it pertains to our hostility toward God by nature. Romans chapter 8, Paul's laying out the idea here. There are two kinds of people really and only two. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, that is the natural person, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. See, you don't choose your desire. Do you understand that? You don't will your desire. You simply desire what you desire. You may try to control it and guide it, but you can't determine what it is you desire. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Look at the first person here. First kind of person, unbeliever. Verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh or the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Now don't miss this. It does not submit to God's law. We don't want to submit. Even after Christ does a miraculous work of redemption in our lives, we are not people who naturally like to submit. I don't want to do it your way or God's way. I want to do it mine. But the Spirit works in us over time and changes the inclinations of our heart and our soul, changes the disposition of our desires. Again in verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's not just that it doesn't, it's that it can't. The person outside of Christ cannot submit to God's law. They can't do it. It's beyond their ability. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. They can't do it. It's not simply that they want, it's that they can't. They're imprisoned by their own nature and delight in it. And understand what Paul's saying here, because if we don't take doctrine and just make it real and normal, then it just stays in the head. This means your kind, helpful, moral neighbor is hostile toward God and hates God. Your sweet, generous, unrepentant, non-Christian granny who will not to submit to God does not submit because she hates 
God. She is hostile toward God. This is the state of unbelievers. Paul moves on to believers in verse 9. You, however, you Romans who've been redeemed by God's Spirit are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. This is why New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, who just recently passed away, says over and over throughout his works, the question in the New Testament is not, are you saved? It is, do you have the Spirit? And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. We are, John 3 and Romans 8 say, by nature, hostile to God. It's not even that we don't want to submit and love Him, it's that we can't. We are unable to. The posture, the inclination, the disposition of our heart is to love darkness, to revel in sin and hate God and His light. But there's more, if that's not bad enough. We also are by nature blind to the things of God. Blind to the things of God. I can give you many passages here. Let's just do, let's just do one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The person without the Spirit, right? So that's the non-Christian does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish. Of course they do. And cannot understand them. Do you, do you hear that? This is why you can share some of the things that are so deeply important to you from your faith with someone you love, and they just sit with a blank face and hear you out politely and then go on their way. Apart from the Spirit, they cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They cannot understand them, verse 14 says, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. We're by nature hostile to God. We are by nature blind to the things of God. We can't see them. We can't hear them. We can't understand them. One more along this line of thought. It's not bad enough that we're hostile to God and we're blind to the things of God. Scripture teaches very clearly that we are by nature dead. Dead in our sin and rebelliousness. Ephesians 2. Dead in our sin and our rebelliousness. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, as for you now redeemed Ephesians, you were before Christ, dead in your transgressions and sins. Let me just pause there and pose to you a rhetorical question. You know what, a, what you do with a rhetorical question. You don't answer. It's not meant to be answered. You turn it into a statement, and there's the answer. What does, what can a dead person do? What can a dead person do. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Remember, Jesus' invitation throughout the gospel is not invite me into your heart, it's follow me. Instead of following the ruler and the ways of this present age, follow me. 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us. This is why a true understanding of the gospel just crushes any arrogance or judgmentalism in the life of a true believer. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We were doing exactly what we wanted to do. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And early in Romans, Paul says that wrath is just piling up, piling up, piling up for those outside of Christ. Dead in our sin and rebelliousness. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people are done too. Dead people don't do anything. And so we find this great statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Starting with verse 21, he says, I find this law at work, that although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. This is late into Paul's Christian journey. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. You see, something has changed now. In his inner being, the the seat of his desires and his affections have been changed. And even with that, he says, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. And then he poses this powerful question, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then in verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Solus Christus in Christ alone, Paul says, even at a late stage in his Christian walk. He says, I'm pushing all my chips in on Christ alone. Not Christ in me, not Christ in penance, not Christ in sacraments, not Christ in the priesthood. Christ alone. Ulrich Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli said, Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are, and shall be. Now, where did Ulrich Zwingli and Luther and Calvin and Knox, and where did they get this? They got it from Scripture. See, our understanding of what happened in the 16th century is slightly off if we think it started with the corruption of Roman Catholicism. It didn't. It started with Luther and his Bible and his own wrestling with God. And when God in his mercy and grace opened the door of salvation to Luther, everything fell off his eyes and the way he looked at the church and the whole way in which faith was practiced in his day. He began to see, we've got problems. We've got problems. And with Christ cries out, or with Paul cries out, who can save someone like me? What a wretch I am. Oh, my Savior, my God, in Christ Jesus is my hope. 
Romans 3, 21 through 26 is a classic Solus Christus, Christ alone passage. Be a great place for you to just spend some time dwelling, maybe even memorize it, pound on it, as Luther said, until it yields the fullness of its fruit. But now, Paul writes, but now, Paul's been describing up until, this pers- uh, up until this point the universality of sin and its imprisonment within the human race regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you were under the law or not under the law. He says, but now apart from the law, doing something that the law couldn't accomplish, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Some might say through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Within this context, that doesn't fit nearly as good. That's what we see throughout the New Testament in Romans, that it is in throwing ourselves on Christ in trust, through faith, that the righteousness that is rightly His is imputed to us. Through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference based on race or economic status or gender or anything else. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This, Paul says, is how God can both be righteous and declare the unrighteous now righteous. He does it through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. John Calvin said, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. And I submit to you this morning that our cry is Christ alone, not just in redemption but in Christian living. Some of you are exhausted because you're trying to to live for God without understanding you live for God by Christ alone. That the grace of God through faith in Christ is powerfully at work in you. This was certainly Paul's understanding. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul says, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy. Now, these are people who are already believers. 
And Paul says, we pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. By his power, by the power of God displayed and released in and through Christ. May he bring to fruition every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith that you have. Paul says it's all by God's power. Some of the reason that some of you are stuck in areas and can't experience victory is because you're trying to do it through your power. And it's not just, it's not just here. 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul's working wasn't in addition to God's working. Paul's working was produced by God's working. Paul understood late in the game his utter dependence on God for everything in his life, for every inclination of his heart, for every discipline toward godly living. Solus Christus in Christ alone. Philippians 2, 12, 13, last verses for this morning. Philippians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. For it is God who works in you. It's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Your working as a believer in the realm of your faith is not your working in addition to God. Your working is God's working. It is God working in and through you. Once more, Zwingli says, We know from the Old and New Testaments of God that our only comforter, redeemer, savior, and mediator with God is Jesus Christ, in whom and through alone we can obtain grace, help, and salvation, and besides from no other being in heaven or on earth. If you're in here this morning and you love the light instead of the darkness, if you're in here this morning and you are aware of the goodness and the working of God in your life and in His world, if you're in here this morning and you're alive to the person and work of Christ, the glory of Christ, and you have the Spirit in your life, then I hope that your heart understands the cry, Christ 
alone. Because you did nothing, friends. That wasn't prompted, guided, carried along, and empowered decisively by God. You played no decisive, determinative part in your redemption, and you play no decisive or determinative part in your sanctification. We cooperate, we walk with God, but we are not the decisive ones, either in our salvation or our sanctification. And to the degree that we continue to believe that it was mostly God and a little bit of us, we continue to live without the power and the gratitude and the joy and the sacrificial posture that only a right understanding of the gospel gives us. In a hymn from the 19th century that was originally called The Advocate by Charity Bancroft but has been updated and re-released now under the name Before the Throne of God Above. She writes these words out of her own study of the Reformation and particularly the doctrine of Solus Christus, Christ alone. Some of you will know this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Beholding there the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And she finishes, thank you, Lord Jesus. No Savior but you. No Savior but you. Solus Christus in Christ alone. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.